collective culture, we more of the action oriented means that we might do things on behalf of someone as a way to showing love. Oh, so, when we all fight over the bill at the end of Yamcha. Yeah. <laughs> that one too. Absolutely. And it's, it's a way to show respect. So we don't tell people, I love you. It's yeah. awkward. It's like even I can do it over the phone with my mom. Find it hard because we're just not taught. That's Ivan Yo, the Deputy Director of Asian Family Services. They're a crucial service that provides a cultural bridge of understanding for families living in New Zealand who have come from more collectivist cultures. For many from these communities, the Western approach to mental health can seem strange and isolating. As a result, people forego the help and support they need and can become entrenched in mental health misunderstanding. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland, and sponsored by MedWorld. Rarely in conversation do we hear about the state of Asian health. Despite being over 15% of the New Zealand population, it feels like this issue has dropped completely off the map. If we take the data at face value, it appears that on average, Asians in New Zealand are doing all right. But within this demographic are a super diverse population, heterogeneous in culture, needs and health risks. To help me unpack this often overlooked issue of Asian health, I'm speaking with Ivan Yeo, Deputy Director of Asian Family Services. He dispels the myths that exist and shines a light on core issues affecting families he serves. So thank you so much, Ivan, for coming on this podcast. Uh, I think uh, a really important thing mm. for us to talk about is about Asian health mm. and you know, within that mm. Asian mental health. Mm. It's a really big issue, I think, in the Asian diaspora around the world who, for Asian people who are living in Western countries because there's, I, guess, I guess there's like a disconnect between Asian mm. health and the Western model of care. So I'd be really interested to hear a bit from from you because you obviously work at Asian Family Services, a little bit about the work that you do there and also your own background and how you ended up in this space. Sure. That will be a long story, to be honest. (laughs) Ah, we're here for it. That's what the podcast is for. (laughs) So let's start with just introduce myself. I'm Ivan and and usually I tell people I was making Singapore process from Malaysia and exported to New Zealand in 2001. (laughs) And I identify myself as a Chinese Malaysian. Um, I speak fluent Mandarin and broken English. And why I get into mental health is probably through my own experience of struggling to understand my emotion and, and also my own mental health that really get me into wanting to work um, in the mental health sector. And my very first job wasn't because of my degree. It was because of my mental health experience um, where there's an organization called Mind and Body being piloted uh, to test a a peer support model, which is funded by Auckland uh, Te Fatuora at the time. And so I applied the job and I got it. 
And since then, I've been working in mental health sector um, and working in mental health foundations uh, and now at the Asian Family Services as a deputy director. And I am very fortunate, I felt, to finally be in a space where I can really do my work uh, and not have to think about how my goal, my vision, uh, whether align with um, other services or organization when uh, the population sometimes they address my not necessarily the populations that I personally hope to work with. Even though I have had a privilege throughout the time working in uh, different services to work with Asians, but that is more like an add-on. Mm -hmm. means that I employ as a mainstream for certain part of my work, but also add-on to support Asian communities. Um, and this time I felt there's a lot more authentic city when working in mental health, uh, especially uh, for Asian family services uh, and also have I, I have to say that we are also very fortunate to have an incredible, inspiring re leader um, because people don't understand this when you are the only person as an Asian uh, confronting with, you know, like probably majority Pakiha, you have to be very resilient and confident and strong to voice why Asian is not being considered in this work. Um, so yeah, so that sounds up everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, could you tell us a little bit more about your own exploration mm. of your own mental health issues? Mm. Because cause obviously I'm Asian myself. And when I talk to other Asian people, mm. it's like mental health isn't really like a thing, right? Mm. In a lot of our Asian mm. communities, mm. I would say my mum probably had quite a bit of mental mm. health issues previously and my mm. grandmother certainly did, mm. but they've never sought formal mm. help or anything like that. My mum's fine now, mm. she's fine now, but mm. it's one of those things where we don't talk about it. It's I'd say that's that thing. What was that? What's that saying that they say? I'm um, trying to like save face. Yeah, it's yeah. a very, it's shameful to have yeah. a mental health thing because yeah. I think in a lot of Asian communities, mm. having a mental health issue is seen as a shame. It's because you're not strong enough. You don't have the willpower to have good mental health. Absolutely. So I'm really interested yeah. to understand when you talk about mental health, was this something that you started thinking about when you mm. were still in Malaysia or mm. after you'd already mm. come to New Zealand? Mm. Very good questions because. Back in Malaysia, even though I knew I wasn't happy and my childhood was quite traumatic one, having a father who's also experienced, uh, you know, like gambling harms. Mm. Uh, and also then I would move a lot. Uh, he also affiliate with gangster. All that combined um, make me feel anxious all the time. How old were you, you know, when you were going through all this? I remember when my very first panic attack, of course now I knew it was a panic attack. I was only in primary school because I think I'm quite a sensitive child. So I absorbed my surrounding and at the time our family started having quite a bit of problems because of my father, uh, like gambling and all that. And uh, since then life has not been easy until like I was adult, still not easy. Um, 
the, the differences is, I think the biggest difference is as a collective culture, you're surrounded by people you love. You know, my mom, my sisters, three of them, they married children. So our behavior is more of outwork, collaborative style. So I will help my sister with something or when uh, she needed me or, or whatever. So I never really have time to sit down and think about myself. I, I knew probably I'm not happy because I also know I'm gay. But it wasn't apparent until I came to New Zealand. Suddenly, I have all the free time. No one bothering me and I just a lot of free time with your own thoughts <laughs> exactly that's the one that is the one. Oh, yeah and oh my god suddenly I hear all these thoughts and struggling to find who I am Be- because I've been you know helping others and my sister my mom so that's like my identity outside of that um I always felt I'm extremely lucky because I was studying social science at AUT. It gave me a foundation to unpack my own culture, understand the, the, the politics in New Zealand, homosexual history in New Zealand. And I was unpacking myself and slowly peeling off my skin and then rebuild it. And how old were you when you came to New Zealand? I was pretty old, 28. Pretty old? Pretty old? <laughs> I'm 29. <laughs> I wasn't like a, like a 19 or 18. Commonly yeah. like international students were, yeah. but I, I, I was an adult student. Yeah. And what was like happening in like your own life leading up to you coming to New Zealand? It was chaotic because, to be honest, I was even shocked the fact that my father was able to have money. I mean, I'm not rich. We're not from a rich family. And financially, like collectively as a family, we're always struggling. And I was contemplating of taking my own life at the time. Before you came to New Zealand? Yeah. So then my parents became worried. And so that was how Asians dealt with problems. They say, I give you money. What do you want to do? I say, I want to go overseas and study. They say, yeah, go. <laughs> To take you away from yeah. all of your your social network, your social safety net, and yeah. put you in a foreign country with a different language. And I don't even think about, oh my God, is this the right <laughs> things to do? You know, like, Jesus. Yeah. What was going on? What led yeah. you to feel so yeah. low that you were thinking yeah. about killing yourself? What What was going on? I think uh, uh, the, the biggest challenge at the time was uh, knowing I'm gay, you know, like, and... I also, I can be myself in, in Malaysia. Because um, what is the LGBTQ ah, scene in yeah, Malaysia? Because yeah. it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because Malaysia yeah. is quite a Muslim, a Muslim country. Is it Muslim majority? Is yeah, that right? Yeah. Absolutely. So how, how do you, yeah. I don't know, figure that out? I think I remember I always knew I was quite different in terms of, you know, I associate more with girls than boys, mm-hmm. you know, like, and... I have three older sisters, so I always wanted to be like them. One day I can marry my dream prince. <laughs> so I was like, until one day I realized that's not going to happen in the class when I tell my teacher I want to be a housewife or something. Did you actually say that? Yeah, oh, what was the response? Of course, everybody laughed. Oh, Ivan's just joking. <laughs> <laughs> what a clown. <laughs> oh, actually, you're not. 
because as a kid, you don't like I people don't understand gender and and sexual orientation. I'm just wanting to be protected. That was just my feeling by being neglected and all that. And I happened to read a, a newspaper describing what is homosexuals in Mandarin newspaper, and I remember I read it through. Probably that was age twelve, and then suddenly everything just clicked. Oh, I am that. But in a country where, of course, tradition is preserved, that kind of life have a blueprint. You just have to duplicate, duplicate, and then that duplicate. Sorry, you just have to duplicate the same blueprint. That would be your answer for life. And so I felt uh, I'm going to let down because also I'm the only son, you know, like, um, and also I just couldn't live up to the expectation of. Uh, what that means in the patriarchal society as a manhood. Now looking back, I felt like I am extremely lucky because my father he faced a lot of problems himself. So now his son is not a gangster, you know, like. So the, <laughs> for him, the bar was quite low. Yes. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Oh, God. Yes. Yes. So, oh, you're gay. It's okay. <laughs> so now, Could have been worse. Could have been worse. So I was like, wow, yes. they love my partner. Yeah. Oh, that's like, good. That's yeah. so lucky. So it's, it was hard. It's, that, it's not easy. But I look back, I just feel like I'm just so grateful. And hence, like learning from my own experience, I really want to share with the world, especially seeing first line. Like when I was working as a peer support, I keep seeing Asians, uh, especially who assess our services, have a lot of stigma compared to when I working with La Pakiha and all that. They talk to me freely. Uh, they still believe that they can have a dreams. Uh, when I work with, you know, like Asian populations, at the time was mainly Chinese, they have very negative views about their own mental health. They don't want to let other people know. They reluctant to socialize. Compared to Pakiha, there's a certain degree of that as well. But it's just if you put it into a continuum, Chinese is on the extreme end. And so that's when I start asking question why, you know, like, and then I realized that because the like my like my campaign, which is pretty big in twenty years ago, the, the what, sorry, the... oh, they call like mice like mine. So it's anti stigma and discrimination campaign that uh -huh. came out from Mason's jury uh, inquiry into the mental health systems and uh, what he found and recommended to the government at the time is that there are they there were a lot of people experiencing uh, stigma and discrimination. This is in New Zealand? In New Zealand. Sorry, thank you. Uh, uh, despite they are the most vulnerable, uh, that was, sorry, I also have to go back to the factors because uh, mental health uh, was uh, de-institutionalized mm -hmm. at the time. And so the people who've been locked up for a good time of their life suddenly say, now go back to society. There's no support and whatsoever. And uh, there were a few very high uh, profile uh, of individual being attacked by people with mental distress. And so New Zealand society in general were really anxious 
and hence that inquiry called Mason's inquiry, I think it's 1998, if I'm not wrong, um, came about the time and then start re-looking at the directions, including setting out mental health commissions, which was the very first one, reinforcing uh, mental health funding, uh, setting out the blueprint for uh, mental health services and all that. And anti-stigma were part of that recommendation which was picked up uh, and then by the government at the time and evolving into a very successful first in western world nationwide campaign and then there is a whole other history because they also do they, they did a tra- uh, tracking uh, um, survey of individual attitude and behavior. Uh, so they were able to track people's yeah, relationship about mental health and then seeing, seeing how it changed. And then about 10 years, uh, then John Cohen depression started. Um, and then that's where how New Zealand's mental health attitude will change. However, if you put someone new to New Zealand, never being influenced by others, they do not have the same background understanding. Right. So as a new immigrants to New Zealand went there around the time of the early 2000s with the institutionalization of mental health provision. So they don't really yeah. understand the fact that we actually do need to destigmatize mental health. Right, right. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. And also, sorry, and, and another thing also because sometimes we forget the mental health is a Western biomedical models and it's the only model in the world that separates mind and body. And so that's how it framed. Uh, and even though f- if you look at the other Asian culture, there's no equivalence of those languages. And hence, when you're trying to translate, literally people are translating the English medicalized languages to their native language. And that can become misinformed. In the early day when people experience psychosis, it was translated as um, perversions of mental illness in, in, in that Mandarin language. So, and people don't stop and think about all that have a, such a strong influence from where they came from. And however, we all have our mental health, but it frame in different way, like Tai Chi, yoga, in the Eastern world, where it emphasizes on cultivating mind and body. Hence, uh, we're always advocating for any people when working with Asian, try to understand what is their understanding of mental health, their view about mental health, and also having a little bit of psychoeducation. You hear they say funny things like, oh, I think this is uh, like white people problems. <laughs> As an only white people have mental health problems. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but they, in some way they're right. They, what they're trying to probably is, that is how they frame it. That's why it's a problem in... If you don't measure it and you don't diagnose it, it doesn't exist, right? Yeah. I think it's interesting to talk about how the Western model is the, mm. you say, the biopsychosocial kind of model. Mm. And it brings it back to what you were saying before about how Pākehā people mm. tend to be a bit more open about it. And I guess I've been thinking about it a lot recently. Has it sort of swung, so the pendulum mm. swung so far? Because you get people almost, mm. I think, over-pathologising mm. mental health as well. Mm. So people 
I think especially the younger generations mm. are more likely to throw around diagnoses of, mm. oh, I'm so depressed or mm. oh, I'm so anxious and not real. Oh, I've got, mm. oh, I've got anxiety or whatever. Mm. And I think there are people who genuinely have what we say generalized depression disorder or mm. generalized anxiety disorder. But I think there are a lot of people who have a bit of malaise. Mm. They're a bit mm. sad mm. or a bit depressed or they do get do have mm. genuine tendencies to be anxious. Mm. But I think there's almost like a in Western culture, there's almost an over pathologization. Mm. I think people talk about it like almost like too much to the point where it's like people are making it almost trendy mm. to be be depressed or be anxious. And so mm. it's like I think we need to find a balance mm. in between. Mm. I, I agree as well. And also, I think there's another challenge that um, I generation need to understand is the world is so different from uh, the young people now because the accessibility of technology. And in some way, sometimes I felt sorry for the younger generation because to be honest, I can't even Im imagine how it's like when you constantly get to prepare yourself a compare yourself with image that you've seen on all these you know, social media and what parents or even just the society as a whole we also haven't think about how then we having those dialogue and also a constructive uh, skill to develop their problem solving skills i mean emotion with yourself um, uh, how do i uh, understand uh, when I'm feeling overwhelmed um, and what does it mean when I say I can't cope and the idea is to learn then what are the solutions I can apply in my own situation. Um, I'm talking also from someone who experienced depression, anxiety, and um, I'm very fortunate even from Asian family services to have a monthly supervision because my C understand my condition and I was able to find someone who was just extremely helpful. And he helped me to develop a lot of coping skills. He helped me to develop skills that I'm not good at. However, I felt like also because I have learned a lot of mistakes, so I'm able to accept that kind of coaching. But I also want to acknowledge that because of what he has been able to provide, it made me grow as a person. And hence, I, my, my thinking is if we emphasize on mental health, well-being, and then we keep emphasizing, oh, you just need to do mindfulness, you just need to do this and that. However, it's to look at individual where their gap is and then how can I bring the skill that you need to change the behavior that, you know, like bothering myself. Yeah, mm. it's it's, and also I want to talk a bit more about the the mind body connection, right? Because mm. like you say, in a lot of Asian cultures, it's it's one thing, it's one and the same. Mm. You can't separate the two. Mm. And uh, what I've been finding a lot is a lot of people are presenting to mm. like when I see them in my own practice, mm. are presenting mm. with physical symptoms yes. that are related to mental mm. health issues, and it's quite uh, it's quite interesting when. A common thing that happens mm. is that uh, 
adults, so mm. people in their maybe 30s or 40s, mm. often come to the emergency department with chest pain, mm. right? Mm. And when we hear chest pain, mm. the thing we want to make sure is that they haven't had a heart attack, right? Yes. And so we get a lot of young-ish people, yeah. say people in their 30s, yeah. and they'll have chest pain yes. and clearly, oh, oh, it's clearly it's not a heart attack because yeah. we've done tests and it's clearly not a heart attack. Yeah. And I just talk to them and I ask them a little bit mm. more, a few more questions about what's going on in mm. your life. Mm. Oh, are you stressed? Mm. Your blood pressure is a little bit high. Mm. What's been going on? And it has been a, a few Asian mm. patients as well. And mm. then they say, oh, no, I'm not stressed. And then their partners might be like, oh, no, she's stressed. And then you're like, oh, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then you see the light bulb switch yeah. an hour later when they're like, Oh, yeah, I think it was just stress, eh? And so there's a lot of people who come to the hospital with physical symptoms and they haven't quite made sense of the fact that actually these physical symptoms are as a result of, like, mental health. Yeah, mm. It's not separate, but mm. I guess, like, how I explain it to people because mm. it happens in children as mm. well. Absolutely. We often get children who come to the hospital with yeah. abdominal pain mm. or recurrent or chronic abdominal mm. pain. And mm. we, we, done a lot, we do a lot of tests mm. and we make sure it's not mm. appendicitis or mm. anything else dangerous, mm. but it happens all the time. Frequently get kids coming to hospital with chronic abdominal pain. Mm. And uh, you do see like a light bulb switch when you talk to parents mm. and you say, oh, there's this thing called the mind-body connection, yeah, right? Because you actually have like almost as many neurons in your gut as you do have in your brain. So no wonder why when people are distressed, mm. they feel it in your gut. Mm. You gotta wonder like, where do these like sayings come from? Feeling it in your gut, trusting your gut. Mm. It's because mm. when you don't feel so well in your gut, it's probably because you don't feel so well in mm. your mind. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree because I'm so pleased to hear you say that because one of the things is really uh, important to understand is even mental health can have a different manifestation because people assume like this because someone who have mental distress, they will be able to verbalize their stresses. And a lot of study have done that I can't quote anyone, but I know uh, they have looked at Asians. Usually they are more stima uh, som somatic that's right, yeah. yeah. Instead of psychological as compared to hands, like even myself, like when I get stressed, my chest starts. But I never go to because I know it's my anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> so I know I'm not Do you think change. you're having a panic attack? Sometimes you have to say that, right? <laughs> exactly. That's like, yeah, I can tell myself, breathe, I will breathe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's another challenge. That's why we've seen a, a lot of like even not taking into account and, and we worry that when people come, then it became too late because like all the stresses has been bottling up. And when we do presentation to international students, we often let them understand this. If you keep building out that stress, it's almost like blowing a, a balloon until it can't contain anymore. And so it's well, finding a healthy way either exercise, you know, like mindfulness, to be able to whew, just relieve and let go. Um, I think it's something that just people in general, especially in Western societies, don't understand mm. is that actually we're working ourselves into an early grave yeah. with our current lifestyle. So I see people, young, like I say, young people in their 30s who mm. are probably walking around with high blood pressure, mm. uh, you know, impaired glucose tolerance, so early diabetes, mm. high cholesterol, and mm. they're walking around and you don't have symptoms of mm. that. You can't feel those mm. things. It's only when you do tests that you 
find those out. Mm. And people are literally working themselves mm. to an early grave yes, because they're working yeah. so hard. They're not looking after themselves with diet and exercise. And it's interesting because I feel like previously mm. in, in my medical training, mm. the idea was like, oh, lifestyle. It's mm. so hard to make the individual mm. change the lifestyle, so, which is why we need to prescribe them these medicines mm. and all that because we can't expect them people to make lifestyle changes because it's too hard. Mm. And I'm like, oh God, because I know, mm. I know like, making lifestyle changes are hard, which is why I never tell people, I tell people yeah. never do something like a 30 day, tel- 30 day challenge because that is not sustainable, right? It's about making small changes. Mm. Like, can you take the bus instead of driving? Because even mm. just taking the bus, you walk a bit more. Can you take the stairs instead of a lift? All, all of those little changes, right? And it makes me think more and more about the, the bigger picture of yes. how can we make our mm. society mm. and our environment more more health friendly? Can mm. we make more public transport, make more cycleways? These mm. are important things in terms of cost savings mm. for a society in the future. Mm. And can we make people less stressed mm. in their work? Because people, if, if you're so stressed out now, we're really going to have to pay for yeah. it later. That's and then true. I guess with Asian cultures as well, we it's... It's still common to see that the tiger parenting Mm. and still common to see a lot of Asian people work themselves to the bone, um, probably more so in Asian countries than, say, Mm. in the Asian diaspora around the world. Mm. But that can't be healthy. I Mm. mean, do you have any insights into Mm. what's going on in mental health, say, for people back in Malaysia or Mm. in other Asian countries? Mm. I totally agree what you say. Just coming back to that self-care, I... The, the, the thing is I'm able to hold down a job, full-time job with my depression and anxiety is people don't know, like I wake up early, five o'clock doing yoga, go to bed about eight or nine o'clock. I'm pescatarian. I was a vegan at one time, but it was too boring. But I also do Muay Thai kickboxing. Like I do mindfulness and I cannot do it. Because this my mental health is quite fluctuated. And sometimes people, I don't know, like we assume they will just come naturally to us. And as you say, you have to start somewhere. And also not to have the whole pie at once, but just slowly eating it. So until it became something that we ingrained to. And the second thing is for... I think coming from Asian countries where we are overpopulated, to get ahead means that you have to work harder. You have to excel in order to get to the top. And despite the parents then decided it's not good for the children, move to New Zealand, those beliefs still ingrained to the parents. Hence, if you look at some of the guru who have done cross-culture communication and study looking at the behavior, collective and individualistic culture, Asians tend to focus on a long-term goal, like long-term goal. So as soon as children being born, probably... (laughs) (laughs) Just picking out the universities that they're going to. (laughs) Stanford. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I think it's good to have those aspirations. And it's always about balancing because we also provide Asian family services, also provide incredible parenting in Japanese and and Mandarin languages. And a lot of parents, when they came to our courses, they struggle to have the relationship with their kids. After they uh, completed the, the classes, they realized that 
the first thing they need to focus is building on the relationship with their kids. It's not about measurement of their achievement. So that was the biggest shift. And also because of our um, hierarchical structures of belief in collective culture, and we emphasize on role instead of as a human being person. Consequently, moms like start taking on that kind of senior role of I need to educate my children. So I'm a provider, I'm an educator, instead of seeing them as someone who going to help this little person grow to who she, he, they, them going to be. So that is the biggest difference when you see like how Asian parents would and people who, you know, growing up in here. So like we use different methods, you know, like including bringing that Western model of parenting, but also making it accessible for Asian parents where both have some good things. Isn't yeah, because I think the, the best probably lies somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah. yeah. I think about my parents' parenting and I think I was very fortunate because mm. I think my pa- so my parents came in the early 90s mm. and I think my dad saw how a lot of Asian mm. parenting was done. He was like, oh, that's not good. Because <laughs> I'm the older daughter and my dad yeah. was saying how previously, before I was born and all that, I think... He, he, I don't know if he had the idea, but like he said, in, especially in Chinese culture, they said, oh, it's really good to have a daughter first and then have a yes. son because then your daughter will help you raise the son. Yes. And he, this is what he told me later on when I was a teenager. And he's, yeah, I thought that was like a really bad idea. I'm really glad we didn't do that. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> very sensible parents. Yeah, very sensible. Yeah. I was very lucky. Yeah. I do, I, I, there are some overlap with mm. what I see on social media in terms mm. of what people have had with Asian parenting and all that. Mm. And I think I was very lucky. My parents were very warm mm. and affectionate, which mm. I would say is wow. probably not, I, I guess it's not normal for mm. first generation mm. Asian parents, yes. I think. So I was very mm. lucky. Wow. I remember my dad saying sometimes we'd go to family gathering, like, like family mm. friend gatherings. And my little brother, who's three years younger than me, and he would have been, I don't know, like four at the time, mm. would you know, just go and sit on my dad's lap for no reason, just to, oh, give dad a cuddle. Oh. And all the other dads were like, what? How did yeah. you get him to do that? Yeah. And then my dad was like, oh, he just you know, wow. he just does that because mm. he's affectionate with wow. me and my brother, so we're affectionate back with him. Mm. And so I think, I guess that affection is undervalued, I yes. guess, a little bit. I wonder if it's, do you think it's wonderful if it's like Asian parents like wanting mm. to be strong and showing mm. their child discipline with their emotions and things like that, but mm. then ended up mm. having a bit of a disconnect, I guess, with their own kids. Mm. Yeah, I try to understand that myself as well, because I think if I just talking from a general term, from what I understand and study, is that collective culture, we more of that action-orientated means that we might do things on behalf of someone as a way to show in love. Oh, so, when we all fight over the bill at the end of Yamcha. Yeah. <laughs> that one too. Absolutely. And it's, it's a way to show respect. So we don't tell people, I love you. It's yeah. awkward. It's like even I can do it over the phone with my mom. Find it hard because we're just not taught. I think I, I can't, but when I look at some of the study, they say, Asian culture tend to be comfortable of expressing some of the happy emotion, displaying it, but not necessarily 
express expressing it when it's one on one setting, but I I don't know what it、mm. is. However, because of that's been embedded pretty much like in our society, but I think a couple of things that is because of the hierarchical structures of the society and also patriarchal society. People don't feel that they have permission sometimes to show, especially in the old day. You know, like when 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 senior have to、um, assert that kind of authority. That's just my assumption. Whereas I agree, you know, like one of the thing I love about New Zealand is the expressing of your、um, affection of people you respect and admire. And I often think that. Again, you know, like, and I hear a lot of one point five, which is people who were born、uh, overseas as a young age came to New Zealand before the age of twelve, and then assimilated to New Zealand culture. But they still have both culture, and some of them has expressed it can be a challenge because when you hear your peers' fa- family freely expressing how they feel of each other, but they never get it or hear that, despite. The parents obviously think I work hard, provide to you, give you everything, cook your favorite meal. That's the way I show in love. But yet the children don't understand, and I think there's a little bit of that kind of dialogue need to happen.、Um, otherwise, like children and young people might feel lost. Like what? That's hard,、mean? I think, because、yeah. I don't know about all Asian、mm. parents. So I think there's been. At different points, at different times, a lot、mm. of civil unrest in a lot of countries in Asia, right?、Mm. So,、mm. for example,、mm. my parents grew—they grew up in times of really difficult hardship.、Yes. My dad was six years old when his father passed away, actually、wow. through malnutrition from starvation, basically,、wow. because during one of the Great Leap Forward or Cultural Revolution—I、yeah. always、yes. forget which one—and、yeah. so my dad went through some really、wow. hard times. He's the youngest of five, I think, five or six. And he, you know, ended up having to do the thing where all the adults、mm. had to go into the countryside to live、mm. for a bit. So he lived through that.、Mm. So he, my dad lives through some really、wow. difficult times in、Amazing. China. So I imagine there are a lot of Asian parents who, you know, that that generation who came around that time who've been through some really difficult times.、Mm. And I guess there's trauma from that.、Mm. And I guess I'm just. Really lucky that somehow my dad、mm. didn't pass any of that trauma onto me. He tells me a lot of these stories,、mm. and so I'm very aware of what had what had happened in that part of the world in、mm. the in the past.、So、I'm very grateful that he came、mm. to New Zealand. But、mm. there are also the, the other stuff, right? Of growing up in New Zealand, when you when you look like this, it is what it is.、Yeah. Um, but I want to ask a little bit more about your relationship with your father.、Mm. You know. Do do you guys talk about the stuff that happened in the past in terms of the gambling and the mental health stuff? Because we know a lot about adverse childhood experiences,、yes. right? A lot of research, well documented,、mm. that has profound effects、mm. on a child's development and their later academic, economic achievement, and later mental health、Absolutely. as an adult. Have you guys talked、mm. about that much, or、mm. is it something that sort of you just moved on, or if you're wanting to talk about that? Yeah,、uh, to date, it's still a challenge. Like why talking to my Father, because we don't have. Even though, of course, I will always love him. He will always love me, but we just don't have that relationships. Because I remember, I hated him to my gut growing up, because I saw how and what he has done to destroy, you know, like 
our family, my mom. And Are they still together, your parents? Yeah, she's very traditional. So, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't believe in separating divorce and all that. I'm grateful the fact that my, my father's still in our life. Now, coming to 52, I forgive him, but it was really You're hard. 52? Yeah. Oh, you look great. You oh, don't look 52. It was too kind. <laughs> too kind. I tell people this is hard work to maintain this. <laughs> I was like, it's not a single grey hair there. <laughs> oh, I'm very lucky as well. Like, that's from my parents. Is that natural? Is your hair natural? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm pretty safe until about 65. Just looking at my parents. Okay, they, right. They so 65 is when, you, when it hits. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. Before I interrupted. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I, I mean... Uh, to be honest, I didn't really understand what gambling harm is until I worked for Asian Family Services. I know my father have a gambling issues. Does he still have those issues as well? Yeah, he keeps saying I'm going to stop and then go back. I'm going to stop and I go back. It's, it's like a constant revolving doors, you know, like we're just so used to it. We even joke about he likes horses more than us. Oh gosh. <laughs> I even say he contributed to Hong Kong horse race. That's why he always looks so green. (laughs) (laughs) But the things that he does, sometimes even me as a son, when I hear I was like, this is my father. It's hard to even comprehend the life that he has. And he never lived with us since he started affiliated with gangster because she's quite wise though thank god for it if we knew people know we will be in danger so that's why he hired us away and what do you mean by he hid you guys away yeah so like you guys had to move or yeah uh, so if i saw him outside he told me once saw him outside hanging around with people please don't go and say hi to him because we don't know who he might be hanging around he told my mom the reason why, you know, like we keep moving is because he have people who after him. So he doesn't want us to get hurt, which is true because a few times he came back with bruises or he disappeared and then came back with bruises. And I never allowed to tell people where I live, my telephone number. Gosh, that must have been really difficult. That's why I so far. my counselor's been wonderful he said i have this development issues that's why i don't know how to relate to authority sometimes don't know how to relate to authority yeah because of my father it's always the parenting (laughs) thank god (laughs) i have someone to pray If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, so it's really challenging. I am. We have a very normal life growing up beside all the chaos that my father bring very normal <laughs> except for the chaos <laughs> he will come home because i like music instrument he will give us money learn instruments have a pet and then when he lost money he need money everything will be gone 
you know, like that yo-yo of you know that's very unstable, isn't it? It's very yo-yo of emotions and living conditions. As as you say, avert childhood. This this how you can ensure your children have anxiety, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I still can't buy expensive things to me. I still fear of everything I have is going to be stripped away tomorrow. And so that kind of anxiety fears are going to be with me forever. Well, can I ask, with yeah. you talking about learning more about gambling harm in New Zealand, yes. so what is the degree of gambling harm in mm. New Zealand? Mm. That's what the key message actually I really want to share. And then I digress. <laughs> <laughs> in New Zealand for Asian specifically, we are 9.5 times most likely to experience a severe end. Even though, of gambling addiction? Yeah. 9.5 times. Yeah. Holy moly. Holy moly. Exactly. So people, like, when I first hear, I was like, what 9.5 times mean? So I went and asked the researcher. And then he said 950 times more likely to become severe gambling problems. I was like, wow. 950 times? 950 or 950%? Yeah, 950%. Yeah, yeah, thank yeah. you. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah, so, so I'm not good at mathematics, as you can see. But compared to, of course, then you compare to Maori and Pacific, they also experience significant of gambling harm, which is Pacific about four point something and then uh, Maori about three point something. Like times the risk for Pakeha, like New Zealand yeah. European. Yeah. Exactly. However, when you compare the rest, Asians are at a severe end. But I also want to emphasize because quite often you hear about gambling harm in deprived uh, communities you know, like where pokies are in Maui and, and Pacifica, uh, segregated population in South Africa, sorry. However, Asians have a very different story. They came in because they have the wealth, they have the skill, they have the good health. However, after they came to New Zealand, they don't know what to do. They were bored. So the only place open 24-7, we know where that is. So they went, have a little bit the of casino, fun. The casino, you mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And because the environments are very welcoming, you know, like then they have people speak their language. And before they knew it, they keep going back because they did, didn't have that warmth. Right, because they... they- didn't find that social connection elsewhere and the, the only place where they can get it from is the casino who have hired uh, Chinese or exactly. Japanese or Korean speaking staff or whatever language. And also given some privilege, like a VIP. Right, yeah. You know? So the treatment is really encouraging of behaviour. And you, what we hear is people lost all their properties. I have one person I met as a peer support worker at the time, he um, let the wife and the child came here, have all the money and bought a few properties and thought, sweet, I'm going to retire working for another 10 years. After he came to New Zealand, realized that she lost all that money from gambling. Oh my goodness. And he became so depressed and suicidal. They have to put him in the hospital. Jeez. And people didn't know is in the end the person unfortunately, you know, like ended it all. Yeah. 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 And and so and coming back to gambling harm, people only think about oh, if you can afford the money, you lose or you win. It's not. The time you're taking away from your family. Also that drive or 
wanting to go back to the environment so that you can get that. Because it's a very stimulating environment, isn't it? Dopamine. Because all the light, yeah, exactly, all the dopamine, yeah. all the lights and the sounds, yes. and that feeling of winning and oh, I'm going to win next time. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. I guess that people, when we think about gambling harm, really, probably all people generally think about who haven't experienced it, who don't know about it. They're probably just thinking, oh, it's just the financial harm. Exactly. Oh, like they just, it's so awful that these people have lost all this money and assets and whatever. Mm. But I think they forget about like, your story about mm. that actually the gambling harm is much more than that. It's the harm to the families as well. Yes. It's that harm of that yo-yo of financial instability. The chaos. The yeah. chaos. Yeah. I mean, like my father would come home, wanted money and then took all the money my mom saved to pay rent and all that. And then my mom ended up crying. I didn't know. I was I was just angry with my father. Not until one time I was doing a radio show with my colleagues and the, the radio show was hosted in Mandarin. And so he, after hear all that story, he says, so your father is a victim too. Uh, suddenly, I a victim, do you say, yeah? Yeah, I, I just, I never thought about that way. And since then, I completely let go. I was like... I suddenly able to just wholeheartedly forgive my father because he was a victim. And hence, like, sometimes I felt I really want the society to understand when you talk about gambling from the surfer, it's a money, but the repercussions of how it then have the ramification of the family is invincible. And if we don't talk about it, people is not going to be educated. The harder things I felt like also people who experience gambling harm also are the least likely to seek help because of the stigma, worry about how they're going to be perceived, but also wanting to win their money back because they have lost so much, they just want to chase it. So it became a virtuous cycle as well. And it's not easy journey. Um, my father, when he's not gamble, he's like a zombie. Like you can see there is something that is just not there. But when he start uh, like gambling again, he's upbeat, excited. It's almost like two person. It's, it's probably similar to, say, drug addiction. Yes. Yeah, we talked, we touched on dopamine, right? Absolutely. I guess it's the addiction to that stimulation that that gambling provides, because that's what drug addiction is. Really, mm. it's this, there's a chemical component to drug addiction where some psychoactive drug yes. causes some neurochemical changes in the brain, mm. and you get hooked on that feeling that your yeah. brain makes. And then yeah. with gambling, it's a very similar thing. And we talk about things like sugar addiction yes. and, or junk food addiction or whatever, and it's all a similar thing. Or even gaming addiction as well. Not even gambling, gaming addiction, which I think is this big tidal wave that's coming for our young people that yeah. I think people are talking about it but not really things like it was like Roblox and Minecraft mm. and Fortnite and all these and I think we saw a lot of that in mm. the pandemic as well with yes. everyone being at home is yeah. that there were skyrocketing amounts of kids you know, on video games yeah. and kids who usually in the past kids would get together to go for a bike ride mm. or play football in the park and then they couldn't go outside so mm. connected through <laughs> playing Fortnite Absolutely. And, and also we have a spike of phone <coughs> call during COVID about parents who get so anxious of what to do with their kids because they get temple tantrums and spend a, 
a significant amount of time on online game, and many have never played gaming before. And we even have someone who contact us, a father realized that the son read out the credit card with a few thousand dollars. Oh gosh. A lot of parents don't know it's because some of the game you need credit card to unlock and, and start playing. So they thought a few dollars, what is the harm? For kids who have no sense of finance and money, if they see something they want to purchase, like a loot box, like where they can open out, have some surprises of skin, they look cool in front of their friend. And again, like that kind of behavior will become you know, like the positive or negative reinforcement where mm. you hear something, you get excited, you really want to persuade it. And that got repeated. And the father come to us and asking for help and we help him and, and also help to put some support system for the kids and for the father agreeing on some agreement how then to mitigate that uh, process as well. And again, not many people pick up a phone call and say, I have these problems. Can you help me from Asian communities? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard in general, yeah. like for anybody, yeah. but I think specifically it is harder amongst Asian communities. I mean, for one thing, mm. when we talk about Asian, it's not, I think when, when people talk about Asian, I think they sort of immediately in their head picture East Asian appearing yeah. people, like people who look like a little bit more like me, yeah. right? And I wonder, because your Asian family services, and I had a look at your website, and actually it's not just East yeah, Asian exactly. people, right? It's Asian comprise, Asia comprises a quite large yes. ge- geographical area Absolutely. and a very incredibly diverse group of people. So mm. the needs of, say, a Jap- like Japanese community is very different from, say, the needs of like an Indian or mm. Pakistani community, mm. very different. And I think one of the other things I want to talk about is really like the needs of the Asian, Asian community at at mm. large, right? Mm. Because we've had these recent healthcare reforms mm. and a lot of us talking about equity, talking yeah. about Maori health and Pacifica health, which we absolutely need to do something about. But what's missing in there is Asian health as absolutely. well, because we don't really have a strategy. No. I don't believe that there's an Asian health strategy. Absolutely. And I think the key to that is realizing that, oh, we can't just group all of these people into one group. Cause like we say, the needs are very different. I mean, in my experience as a doctor, I see in, for example, in mm. South Asian communities, mm. so Indian and Sri Lankan people have quite, I'm pretty sure there's research out there, but mm. anecdotally from my experience, I see a lot of Indian and Sri Lankan people with heart attacks, yes. with diabetes and yes. high blood pressure and high cholesterol. Yes. And then I think in the East Asian communities, those are a lot lower, mm. right? Mm. And so when you add all the, but East Asian communities have their own health mm. problems, right? But then if you add those groups together, then suddenly you've sort of averaged it out Absolutely. and then you and then, then it looks like actually oh actually Asians are all quite healthy yeah. because you've like cancelled out the fact that this group over here doesn't have very good health statistics over here and this group over here does and then you miss the fact that actually our South Asian communities need a lot more help in these sort of metabolic syndrome related illnesses I'm so glad to hear you say that you know like <laughs> so, so, uh, because 15 years ago there were these health Asian health chart, I can't remember the name. They were researched, as you say, like disaggregated all the population of Asian. And that was what the finding were, the South Asians have a higher risk for heart attack and all that. And unfortunately, when we lump together, all our health outcomes look to be relatively healthier compared to other 
population and suddenly we don't have any health issues and we don't have any funding that allocated to the health, Asian health population. And what we I have seen even personally is policy really drive where funding is going to go. And I think the government actually doing the right thing right, to cater for vulnerable population. We have no issue with that because yes, they, they have experienced more challenges. However, I think the unintended consequences as suddenly everybody only focusing on these two population. And then when someone else having the problems, there's no resources or even workforce to go to. We often talk to other Tefa to Aura services because they have um, who experimental distress, they cannot speak the language, they don't know what to do, and they want to pass it on to us. And we are not catered for a secondary or tertiary services. And then this person is stuck in the middle. Um, if they are fortunate to have Asians individual as a health professional, uh, they will be asked to support. Again, that doesn't mean that this individual will have that cultural competency and understand how to communicate. In our services, we have done a lot of research and look at uh, some of the uh, intrinsic challenges, including half of the Asians still feel like there's lack of language and culture services. So, so that's why they don't seek help. And when you right, and if you don't seek help, then you don't get diagnosed, and then you don't come up in the statistics for health outcomes. Exactly, exactly. And and so that's what we've been fighting for is because during the COVID, we have over 7,000 phone call compared to when we only had 3,000 phone call during non-COVID period. So you're talking about close to 100 something over percent and we're still holding the same funding, having the same poor people answering our Asian helpline. And we were run, running as a service, like a headless chicken, even though it doesn't sound. But it, it was hard work because there's no elsewhere people can go to, especially when there were even people who can speak the language. They say when they are putting in front of another party, they will give information, support that only catered for individualistic culture. And that person feel like they're being labeled of all oh, your co-dependence with your parents or you can just move out. Because collective culture, Asian kids don't move out until the parents felt like they married, it's the time for them to move out. So they were labeled, judged, or being told things that they felt bad about themselves. And when they came to us, they was like, oh my God, it felt like all the stress is gone because someone understood where I'm coming from. My dad was like, I'm so glad you moved out when you were 17. <laughs> Your dad is really unique. He's very yeah. unique. He's a very interesting person. I know. Yeah. I think he must have seen a lot. He's seen a lot. Yeah. Because I feel like when people really experience vulnerability, like Renee Brown say, they know how to connect to individual. I think your father probably, sorry, dissecting your father. Okay, <laughs> But I, I mean, and that is the challenge that we keep facing. And as a services, and also Asian don't fight like other population fight when they are not getting what they want. They just suck it up. 
I'll just have to do more to solve my problems. They don't go and protest because they don't feel it's the right thing to do. And even when they have opportunity to connect with uh, government official, they only say good things because when you talk to them individually, many will say that they felt as an Asians, they already experienced a lot of discrimination and stigma. So they don't want to present their problems and being perceived as this population have issues. I have a question to put to you um, in terms of, because obviously you guys have lots and lots of clients in the Asian community. Mm. And I guess one of the things I'm sort of like thinking about mm. a lot is the mm. whole language barrier thing, yeah. right? Because obviously we want to bring, mm. we, we want to have interpreters to bridge that language barrier mm. when we're in the you know, healthcare mm. setting, for example, because that's, that's really important. But some things that, some things that I have been struggling mm. with a little bit is in terms of the immigrant population who've been here for a while mm. and what's the barriers between them mm. engaging more mm. with learning English and get, engaging more with the, the local culture. Is it that the local New Zealand culture is not welcoming? Mm. Are we not doing enough to encourage the learning of mm. English or te reo? Yeah. There's been a few times where I see patients at work and they're elderly yeah. patients who I don't I never expect an elderly Chinese person to speak English right mm. but you hope that you know if you don't have an interpreter you hope oh do they have a, a, an adult child that mm. would help them because I think about myself and I think about my parents and even though my dad speaks really good English if my dad needed to go to the hospital I would go there in a heartbeat. Mm. And so I find it challenging when I'm like, oh, it's quite blasé that there's, is there, is there no effort to try and mm. engage, you know, because you got to meet people halfway yeah. when you're trying to engage with the healthcare services. Yeah. I think when people are so used to one culture, suddenly they have to relearn. It, it can be quite scary. Also, when people are so comfortable working to a norm where you know what to do and suddenly you feel like, mm, what should I do? eventually people just going to avoid. And when school talking to us, like how we make sure international students are welcoming, I told them identify someone in your group that where they have some leadership skill, uh, support that individual to become a little bit of a peer, able to share knowledge skill, just pass it on. Another study look at like social rejections mm. where people being socially rejected. And the finding were those pain equally like our physical pain. And when people were prescribed like Panadol or something, that pain reduced. And so social rejections can be hard, especially when individually they just don't feel welcoming. And then I also hear a lot of like schools who run international students program also see a lot of teachers don't know how to communicate with international students. I think students. the social re rejection must be a lot for yes. young Asian yes. kids because for me, growing up Asian in a majority New Zealand European school and community, that was really challenging. I had to assimilate and I've reflected on this a lot. It's like how much have I given up in terms mm. of my, my own Asian culture? There are certain foods that like my parents will cook that I like, I'm like, I don't want it because it's yuck. And then my partner who's, he's English, he'll eat them. And so he's actually the favorite child. <laughs> it's just the whole balance of yes. assimilating versus retaining yes. your, completely retaining your own culture. Mm. And uh, Something I'd like to touch on as well is, I guess, how Asians are portrayed in the media mm. is something that will heavily affect Asian mental health as well. Mm. I've got, if you're, especially, I guess, if you're an Asian male, you're 
you know, in, in the social media and pop culture, the Asian male mm. is not particularly seen as attractive mm. or wanted, right? Mm. And then if you're an Asian woman, then it's it's a double-edged sword because you're either attractive because, what's the word, you've been, what's the word when you've been, like, eroticized, yeah, right, yeah, for being yeah, this, like, oriental yeah. or you're, like, not wanted because you're, like, not white. So it's just, it's it must be really challenging, that kind of rejection as well. Mm. And I, I think that's probably something that's, underreported really the mental health of young Asian people as well. And and also to have that dialogue because correct and Asian family services have this documentary called The In Between Us is okay to be in both world. Were the reason of you know like the, the, the productions of the documentary. And many young people say that they feel anxious. They're not too sure who they are. If they're too white, the parents is going to say, you are Asian, remember where is your roof? If they're too Asian, the peer is going to laugh at them and say, oh, you're too Asian. And one of the things I remember is the participant told me when she walked into a situation, she always have to ask herself, do I need to be more white or more Asian today? And of course, people is going to get anxious when you have to become a Cameroon or just adjusting your color scheme to suit whatever that audience were. And another problem also is um, for someone like me growing up in Malaysia, where we have the same population, we have that in the whole society culture being embraced. Norm, that's a big thing. But for someone who, then if I have children, if I just enforce that to my children, they never had that uh, as a reflection to know where they're coming from. Whatever the society that they go out to, they can't find a reference point. So they're going to be like, why my father taught me that when what I'm seeing is not. They not necessarily have those verbal skills to articulate it, but they sense it. And eventually, if someone who able to mitigate the process themselves will come out, it's going to be a shining star because that person is going to be so smart, able to see how they're going to do things, negotiate both culture. If someone who is very sensitive, they're just going to think it must be me. So I, I do find it hard, the whole straddling both worlds, right? Because yeah. I do sometimes feel like, oh, especially when I leave Auckland, mm. I'm like, oh, I just feel like I stick out like a sore thumb. Just even the other day on LinkedIn, actually, mm. I shared a post and someone for no reason just mm. decided to comment something along the lines of never trust anyone you can blindfold with a piece of string for no reason. Just That's just something that's blatantly wow. racist for no yeah. reason, just on a public LinkedIn <laughs> profile post. Yeah. Like LinkedIn Unnecessary post. Too. Unnecessary. And you just, yeah. oh, it was not fitting in stuff. It's no matter how much you can do, yeah. no matter how much you can contribute to New Zealand, yeah. no matter how much you can assimilate, talk like a New Zealander, walk yeah. like a New Zealander, you're, that's still that feeling is that to some people, yeah. you never will be like a New Zealander. And that's hard because there's that on the one side. And then also there have been times where I feel like, because yeah. I got a little bit of a large Mandarin, course. rubbish yeah. Mandarin, right? Yeah. And then I speak Mandarin sometimes. Yeah. I, I find that something that's been difficult yeah. for me is yeah. speaking Mandarin and connecting with like Chinese people yeah. because then they're like, oh, your Mandarin's a bit shit. And then I'm like, Mm. I would never say that your English, English is a bit shit. Like, wow. <laughs> what? But you know what I mean? I know. And I'm right. like, go 
gosh, like that's so rude, isn't it? <laughs> but you know, I just yeah. know that if like a white person spoke yeah. the Mandarin that I spoke, they'd be like, oh my oh god, my that's so god, amazing. That's so cute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm like, Jesus, guys. I, t- I tell you though, I'm so happy you mentioned that. And, and that's what I have. Because when I saw your post, I thought young people need to see it. I was just so blown away by your openness, like posting it. As an Asian, I know how much courage you have to put yourself forward. So please don't stop being yourself, Dr. Su. <laughs> there will be many young girls is going to be like, oh my God, I can't be like her. Seriously. So I, I'm so glad when you reach out to me, I was like, oh, I like a little superstar. <laughs> And also all the work you did and, and keep advocating for. And so, yeah, remember there's always cheerleader behind you, just like your mom. Uh, yeah, my mom. My mom's a cutie. <laughs> yeah. But my, I think like my mom is like the opposite of tiger mom. Mm-hmm. So my mom is always, you're doing too much. Can you not do so much? I'd rather you did less. <laughs> yeah, self-care, isn't it? Do less. Yeah. Just enjoy yourself. Yeah. My mum, yeah. it's so funny. It was after I got into medical school, my mum was like, I never, ever, 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 ever thought you'd get into medical school. Oh. <laughs> and she's, I, I joke about it with yeah. her and she's, oh, I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean yeah. it like that. And I'm like, but you didn't think I would get into medical school. And she's, oh, it's only because other people's kids got straight A pluses and you only got three out of four A pluses. So, so that's why. And I was just like, oh, thanks, oh, mum. Thank you so for believing cute. in me. But like my mum as well, when I graduated from like AOT, and I was like, what? You finish your degree? <laughs> because I never were a good student because of my mental health issue. I'm never able to do well. However, going back to what you say, and that's why when I produced, when I was getting the funding and doing the in-betweenness, is I hope school will pick it out and have that dialogue. I felt so unfair. Why these kids have to mitigate that like societal norm and all that, become the conduits between their father's parents' world and the school world. Why Why not having that conversation? So healthy. I do feel like there's hope because I feel like things are changing. Yes. Things are changing. Yes. And I feel like, hear me out, I think it's cool to be Asian now, right? Because I, I sometimes I go dancing on the North Shore. and It's like a hip-hop dance studio called On Beat Dance Studio. And it's run by two Asians. So yeah. the woman, she's Korean and oh. her husband is Filipino. And they're like proud Asians, which is great. I mean, they're, they're awesome. like, oh, I think they're like one and a half generation or, or first generation in, in New Zealand. Yeah. And they've got a young kid as well. And like their dance studio is like full of like young people. A lot of them are Asian and a lot of like teenagers who are Asian. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, you guys go. Cause like mm. it's now it's, it's cool to be Asian. It's Absolutely. cool to be into K-pop and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So I'm like, fire. Cause I, I carried a lot of, I think, Asian shame when yeah. I was growing up. I wasn't allowed to look Asian. Mm. I wasn't allowed to dress like I was Asian. I wasn't allowed mm. to like Asian like music and things like that because it wasn't cool. And mm. now I'm like far out. If I was just born 10 years later, I'd I be know. so cool <laughs> i know right you're not going to be the only one even yeah. like in the school yeah. i know even when i look at howard secondary school and primary school majority are asians some of the school which is great and i think the idea is even when i think people sometimes get too concerned about what to say or what to ask 
And even when, you know, like, I know a lot of Pakeha have good heart, but they don't know how to react. It's like, just ask, you know, like that's how we gain knowledge, isn't it? And that's how we learn. And and I often encourage people if, if even, you know, because we do a lot of presentation and all that about cultural competency and encourage people, I can present my view and what I found from textbook and yeah. research. Well, I think we're looking at the data in terms of predictions of the years to come in the next decades, I think New Zealand demographic is going to be rapidly changing. Yes. I think I was reading somewhere that over half of New Zealanders yeah. are going to be Maori, Pacifica or Asian. Yeah. And I think we need to you know, keep up with Absolutely. that and realize that actually we need to do the best that we can. In terms of social cohesion, mm. we need to be looking at, well, what's the future of New Zealand going to look like mm. and how are we going to be prepared for that and how mm. are we going to be able to mm. make sure that we can bridge that gap? Because mm. we know that people who are coming in from overseas are going to have different mm. viewpoints, different perspectives, and how can we make sure that New Zealand keeps the best parts of New Zealand as our demographics are changing? Absolutely. Just going to the street here, so many restaurants, like which world can you go and have all the best food? <laughs> so amazing. So I'll ask you one last question. Sure. Um, that's all we've got time for at the moment. Where is your, like, what is your favourite dessert of all time? Oh my God, I have so many. <laughs> <laughs> which one's your favourite? Like, off, off the top of your head, okay. Oof. I like this Chinese dessert that have whipped creams in between and then the almonds, but I don't know what they call it. Is it like a bun? Yeah, or like is a it bun. like a okay? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's only in the Chinese cake shops. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. bakery. So, okay, well, do you have a favorite like Chinese like bakery? Yeah, I don't even know the name. There's a oh my gosh. Okay, where, oh where is God. it? Where is it? That there's they have one over um the Dominion Road. It's a Chinese. They also have Sun Style or something. I think that's called Sun Style. Sun Style. I can't remember the okay. name. Okay, but the, a Chinese bakery yeah. on Dominion Road has this whipped cream bun thing, and it's the best. Yeah, with almonds on the with top. almonds on top. Okay, I'll remember that. I'll remember that. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind getting fat with that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Ivan. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Su. It's been amazing. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to titter to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Uh-huh.